tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Don Benefiel. After moving back to Indianapolis from Southern California in 2014, Dawn got her start as a volunteer helping welfare organizations. In 2018, she and a group of people involved with Trap New to Return, TNR, recognized a gap in field services for community cats. Indy Neighborhood Cats launched in August of 2019. Since that time, INC has served over 9,000 cats through four key programs. Through diligent work, INC has formed unique interagency partnerships to strategically work with the city to improve outcomes for all animals in Indy, not only for cats, but for the compassionate humans who have often have their own needs. We believe that many of the residents in Indy who have the highest number of cats in their care often lack connection and purpose. We're moving towards partnerships to help these residents to identify these residents before the situation is out of hand. In November of 2021, Dawn became the executive director of Indy Neighborhood Cats. We are proud to have onboarded the city's most powerful and knowledgeable residents to join the INC team in carrying on the legacy that began in 2003 with Lisa Tudor, who is regarded as the trailblazing champion of the early TNR movement. It is a humbling honor to work with the best of the best and to rebuild the field programs she launched almost two de decades ago. Dawn, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Stacey. All right. So I know we've heard quite a bit in your bio, but I want to find out why is Dawn passionate about cats? <laughs> well, oddly enough, before I moved back to Indianapolis, I never owned a cat. I was in Southern California, and, and when I moved home, life was a lot different for me. And I was in a period of transition, and all these cats just started coming to my home and looking for resources. And I thought to myself, what is happening? And slowly over a couple of years, I started getting involved with other groups and other people that were trying to solve the problem. And I learned about Trap Nader Return. And cats fascinate me because of, for many reasons, but the whole movement is just amazing and, and what we can do. And that's really how I got my start. I Something was changing in my life, and, and I never imagined that something that might have been a little bit of a hobby or passion of mine would become a, a career. Well, welcome. We need as many people jumping into this career of you know community cat program management. Um, we had a focus on that at the online cat conference with all the different uh, community cat program managers. And um, you know, I, I said then, and I'll say it again, there are not many people who sit around your Thanksgiving table as a teenager and say, you know, mom and dad, I want to be a community cat program manager when I grow up. But yeah. I, I want it to be so commonplace that that's what people will talk about around the Thanksgiving dinner table, or they will say, you know what, let's trap me to return those cats in our backyard and not worry about what they're doing now, but we can make them, you know, TNR, we can get them fixed and it'll all be a happy ending. And it's not, Drama, exactly. Right? Well, and people don't know that cats were never designed to be indoors. Their instincts and millions of years of evolution, they were always outside animals. And so when they're born outside, they're they're already set up to succeed with just a little bit of help. But getting them fixed stops the, the problem from 
reoccurring, which is why we're all so passionate. Right. And I don't know many people in this world who would like to live with an unneutered male cat or an unspayed female cat as an indoor only cat. I just don't see that as a viable option. So we, we need to have spay neuter be part of that package first and foremost. So now, Dawn, I am imagining you as one of the leaders and being very focused and organized in your program planning with regards to mass trapping. You you contributed, guest contributed a wonderful blog post on mass trapping uh, for the Community Cats po- podcast e-newsletter. It was phenomenal. It was one of our most popular blog posts that was read. Tell me a little bit about like indie neighborhood cats, your perspective on mass trapping and why is it so critical that we have the knowledge base around that? Sure. Well, you know, most service industries take cases uh, and prioritize them, but it's very easy to want to work a a problem that comes into you in the order received, right? Who has the oldest request? But we know with the breeding habits of cats, that is not effective. And in order to be sustainable and make an impact and, and not take financial hits, because honestly, if you go in to a mobile home park, let's say, that has 200 trailers and there are 150 cats and you trap 50 of them, you you potentially wasted thousands of dollars on spay-neuter because you still have most of those cats out there free-roaming or people with indoor cats that they got from outside that they can't get spay-neutered. So we find that we have to look at the large colonies that are being reported or the large uh, populations of community cats and take those cases with the smaller populations right around that colony and try to tackle it at one time. And so it may not, we have to balance the popular opinion, which is my problem is the worst because it's on my doorstep. But that's why mouse trapping is so important to us. And uh, it's not my expertise. It is literally my field team that is out there that that we've worked on priorities. We've, we've worked with our city to make sure that everyone understands in the community why we work the way we do. And so that's that's where we've found the biggest bang for our buck. We're not going to help the population as a, on the big picture. And it's so easy to get mired down into the immediate fire of the day. Um, and we try very hard not to do that. So does Indy Neighborhood Cats I would call the mass trapping sort of a, an organizational trapping or a trapping party where you've got a lot of key players. You've got individuals, non-affiliated in, individuals. You've got staff members or staff volunteers. But then are there other instances where you have the caretaker pretty much do everything from the beginning to the end of the process? And maybe indie neighborhood cats is just paying for the surgery, the smaller ones that are like two or three cats. Sure. So um, we're only three and a half years old, and we looked at the problem, and our, which is why mass trapping is so important to us, because we felt like we needed to get that established, a good foundation in mass trapping, where we do have multiple partners. And some of that includes the community, right? So when we go out to a mass trapping project, and we look at our database, and we can see on our map where the smaller requests that are coming in are, We go out and multiple people are putting door hangers, letting people know what we're doing so we can holistically care for it. We are still building, um, and a lot of this has to do with uh, veterinary resource or spay-neuter resource where we are, the individual. But we do try to make decisions and we do fill in with people that can help themselves. And so in our database, we mark those people that we feel 
can do the work, can transport. And I would say about 15% or 10% of that right now is individuals, but we're working with our partners to come up with creative solutions to make sure we can we can expand on that because we know public access to doing things yourself is vital to a community cap program uh, as a whole. What size colony would you classify as a mass trapping colony? Is it 10 cats? Is it 100 cats? What's the size where you would sort of say, nope, this is going to be called mass trapping and we're going to have to approach it that way? 20 or more right now. With the current state of the city and our requests, we found that that was our sweet spot for urgent cases. Um, And between uh, 11 and 19 is our high priority. And then our lower priority, which doesn't mean it's not important to us, is um, anything under 10 or under. And when you do your first site visit, um, so I had a couple weeks ago did a a site visit with a situation that had over 20 cats. Do you have a checklist that you use to go out there? You're so organized, so I'm afraid I would love, love to see your checklist. Do you have a checklist that you go out to sort of evaluate, you know, we this do. is good, this is bad, or not good or bad, but, you know, these are our challenges. These are the resources we need to bring in. You do have a checklist? We have a checklist that looks for, um, A, are the cat, well, we always tell people to get cats on a feeding schedule, um, but we look, we have a checklist that our, our evaluation team goes out to look for. Where are the cats? What condition are the cats in? Um, are, you know, where are the feeding stations? Are they organized? Are they overfeeding? Um, and things of that nature. So we do have a checklist that we go through to make sure that then our trapping coordinator, who is Lisa Tudor, um, can then consult with our trapping team and work with the resident or the, the main caretakers to basically correct anything or get cats in the right conditions, which usually is not overfeeding and making sure you're feeding the same place at the same time every day so that we can verify what we called in that article, the swarm. I love that. I love that word uh, because it does, it makes it like fish in a barrel when you're dealing with a large cat population. Yep. And you use the drop trap when you're doing your mass trapping? We do rely a lot on those drop traps. Those drop traps are are just critical um, to to that and colonies where we have multiple a mixed bag of fixed and unfixed cats. Um, so yes, we rely on those drop traps and probably have twenty or thirty in our where and you know at any given time for people to use. And how long will you hold cats in traps while you're waiting to get that last cat? So what we try to do um, is we have multiple slots at a clinic each day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We always book the first set of these cats on that first day of the week. We start to fill in the overflow or plan on any overflow for the very next day so that we can then trap again while those cats are at the clinic overnight. And then they get their surgery the next day. They hold overnight. So I would say... We trap, we take to the clinic immediately, they're fixed the next day, and then they have that next 24 hours to recover. And so we're dropping off our next load of cats while we're picking up the others. Um, So we try to take care of it in two sessions, about 48 hours in total. Um, And that's for our regular weekday slots. We, We are lucky enough that we have clinics that work on mass spay days where they're doing uh, anywhere between a 50 and 100 surgeries. And those, we have a little bit more flexibility and we can get a bigger team involved and do shifts on the same days 
um, for those cats and we'll start the day before. Uh, but And so those cats are held a little bit longer just because we're trapping a day or two before, but they're in the clinic and we have access to that clinic while it's closed so that we can give them proper care. Uh, we have sound machines that sound like woodland creature sounds to make them feel comfortable in low light and things of that nature to make sure they're clean, fed, and as comfortable as possible. You are a lean, mean fighting machine. <laughs> and again, it's just the, it's really just a team of dedicated people that really did, you know, help this foundation. We wouldn't be who we are without, you know, again, the work of Indy Farrell, the advocacy of people, but we have the clinics now that understand um, why we need access the way we do. And that took time. It didn't happen overnight. It's hard uh, to get your word across and, and have the right people in place at the right time. So we understand the frustration of everybody wants instant gratification right now. Um, but those kind of partnerships and sustained messaging and building a relationship so that people know that you're serious and, and consistent goes a long way. That, it, that's what we've learned. Cats of the Wild is the podcast for cat lovers who want to make a difference. Listen to inspiring and engaging stories of wild cat conservation and learning how you can help protect cats all over the world. Search for Cats of the Wild in your favorite podcast app now. Do you want to make things easier on yourself and the others in your organization? Our friends at Dubert have teamed up with the Dallas Pets Alive and Spay-Neuter Network teams, and together they have created the Companion Case Management Module. It allows you to be more proactive with all your organization's needs, create cases for your clients, and organize them by type. Whether it is a rehoming situation, a pet parent needing food or medical assistance, or simply spay and neuter inquiries, CCM can help you manage all of them right from the Dubert system. Plus, a huge bonus, it allows you to connect with those clients right from the case so there is no need to open up new windows for emails or pull out your phone for text messages. Check it out and learn more at www.dubert.com to get started today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum. Come for an answer. Stay for the community. So you're mentioning working with veterinarians, and we talked a little bit before the recording about collaborating with other organizations. You share a little bit about some of the things you're working on in your area. Sure. Well, um, a lot of private clinics that are for profit, because, you know, we know that low cost uh, nonprofit medical care is, is, I mean, the staffing in veterinary services is in critical shape right now anyway. So we have started to collaborate with private vets that are for practice that give us discounts. And we are able to go in and talk to vets and talk to them about our less social friends. And the fact that often if we're trapping and we find a cat that needs critical stabilization, that, you know, that appears good, we want to be able to hold them over, but not necessarily have the, let's say a hernia surgery. We know there's a hernia there and they're in pain and we get them to a, a private clinic. They give us a discount, maybe not charge us an exam fee, 
and allow us to keep that cat there overnight so we can get it to a shelter rescue partner that provides acute medical care for surgeries to make that affordable. Um, and that's something that, again, took a lot of time, but the pandemic was what really made us look for those resources and find the opportunity with um, partners with larger clinics and practices. So we try to find those places where people know shelter medicine uh, or have staff that are familiar with it, that are friendly to it. And then again, with time, patience, uh, being responsible, you build that relationship and your um, care and availability to those services increase. Um, so we're really proud of that, working with the for-profit clinics and places that wouldn't necessarily care for a feral cat or a less social cat. I hate saying feral. I'm sorry. Nope. Um, but the, our less our less social friends, <laughs> let's say. And then you had mentioned also working with a, a dog organization. What's happening with I know. <laughs> So who would have thought, right? Um, but, you know, one of the things that we tell the community often here in Indianapolis is you don't have to be a dog person to, or a cat person to support trap, neuter, return, uh, because dogs are much more likely with, in our current city, dogs are much more at risk for euthanasia uh, than cats. And that's because we started a shelter, neuter, return program at our municipal shelter um, in 2017. Uh, we got the the city ordinances updated to allow cats that were not social to go through the sheltering system there and get returned to field uh, as opposed to they're not social. We need to to make a quality of life decision because they don't have a registered colony. And so that certainly gives more space to our city shelter to help the dogs that are much more at risk. The organization we partner with is out in the same neighborhoods as Indian neighborhood cats. It's friends of Indianapolis dogs outside. And often when they're in the city and working with residents and they find dogs on chains, there are large areas of community cats or free roaming cats in the city. And so what we found was they were referring people to us uh, or us to them and not really working together only because we're so young. But the executive director and I realized very quickly why are we duplicating all of this and just sending people to one another? FIDA was established 15 years ago. They had warehouse space. They opened their hearts and their warehouse to us to store traps so that we didn't have to use funds to duplicate another storage place. Keys and codes to the building, open partnership into our systems so that we could uh, communicate with uh, people on clients that we're both dealing with. And they also fix a lot of friendly community cats that people can get into carriers to your question earlier. So this interagency collaboration helps us by taking the pressure off because they're already out picking up those dogs. So they might as well pick up the cats. So their spay-neuter program is like that. So that's how we got started with Fido. And we now uh, meet all of the cat people by uh, being there two days a week. Um, helping their pet food pantry, which is the largest pet food pantry for residents in Indianapolis. So we now have a presence there um, and get to meet the cat people, help to answer questions and help to sustain that program instead of us having to take on our own cat food pantry. Uh, we felt that was a better use of tools, resources to help join forces with them as opposed to recreating the wheel. Excellent. Wow. That's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Finding all the the systems working together and so that many hands make light work when you're looking at it in an organized way. 
I mean, yeah. you have to have strategy. And I think sometimes yeah. we lose the strategy because we're so busy being pinged this way and pinged that way. Um, it's hard when you're putting out fires to look at that big picture. Yeah. So I get yeah. It. And I will say the pandemic caused quite a few fires. What are your thoughts? We, we have a topic here of post-pandemic challenges and you being an organization that basically started, you know, right before About the pandemic <laughs> started. So so from, from your standpoint, a pandemic life is what you know, really, right. to yep. a certain degree. Um, what, what are your post-pandemic challenges or what have you seen over the last few years? Well, we've seen an increase in the number of cats left outside. We had, um, as the housing uh, crisis started happening during the pandemic and people after resources and the, I think there was a, there was a, a moratorium on evictions. And so during the pandemic, we were great, right? We weren't doing surgeries, but people were staying in their homes. And we know that cats end up outdoors that don't belong there. Um, and oftentimes with the pandemic, those animals weren't fixed, whether they're cats or dogs. And so the biggest challenge for us is looking at our pre-pandemic numbers for our municipal city shelter. How many cats did they intake? What were their outcomes prior to 2020? So our 2019 numbers and looking at them today instead of comparing them to last year or the year before, because we know that those years were were mired. And in between the pandemic and post-pandemic world, we also came uh, a staffing crisis in veterinary medicine. So our city shelter is currently in emergency mode. So they started trying to transition to a managed intake. And earlier last year, they had to go into what's called emergency intake, where they're focusing solely on uh, medical uh, cases. So if a cat is outdoors and doesn't look like they're doing too bad, where they used to do a shelter neuter return, right? The officer could pick up that cat and it back to the shelter. They're now still outside and still breeding. So we're currently looking at ways to look at the gap between the two to see what our, with hard data, what is our, what is our current problem? Because I think every year since 2019 or 2019, we're seeing a snowball of animals that would have gone through the sheltering system that needed it along with the regular challenges that we have controlling cat populations in a in a perfect world, right? Um, and so we're we're trying to identify that and it could be as many as two to three thousand cats each year since then, which is yeah. quite a number. Yeah. I mean we've heard there've been studies that have shown that we have lost traction on three million potential spay neuter appointments in the yep. last uh, since twenty nineteen or, or at the beginning of twenty twenty. That's that's a lot of unspayed or neutered animals, um, and because there were many areas that, you know, they did cease their spay neuter operations, and then that changed the whole veterinary space dynamic. And you know, from that, the United Spay Alliance is now reinvigorated, and we have a vet shortage task force, and we're trying to look at at systems to help alleviate the stress and the pressure for. Um, that vets are, are feeling, but maybe also be able to open up some opportunities to be able to get, you know, cats neutered, maybe by a technician, you know, a certified yeah. veterinary technician, do the rabies vaccine and the neutering and have the, the vet do the spay on site, same facility, but just give them 
um, a that roll a little bit more. I mean, you know, doing a cat neuter, if they could take that off the plate and the rabies yeah. vaccine, that would be huge in terms of a time savings and efficiency. And at this point, I don't think that the key issue here is as much around the spay neuter or the cost of the spay neuter it's right. the availability of the spay neuter because I, I there are people who could pay four or five hundred dollars for uh, a surgery and they can't just get they can't get into a veterinarian right well even just basic medical care so that's another hit after the pandemic people coming to us begging for help with cats that need help yeah. uh that that are still stray but also need and maybe ear tip need medical care uh, that they could have gotten for a basic URI that were friendly. We've had to put together some um, sheets to help people identify what a low, you know, a low priority, just watch and wait of a respiratory infection looks like in a cat. What's a high priority to keep, you know, start doing a little bit extra and when it's really urgent. And so we've, we've had to work on those things and, you know, with the with the crisis and other problems in the world, um, I do think funding is kind of an issue for for some people. Yep. You know, we've had interest rates increase, people taking on more credit card debt. We're going to see more layoffs as um, companies start to scale back, and it's not sexy fundraising for diversity neuter. It just isn't. Um, it's hard, so we rely very heavily on grants. Um, to cover those things, as the industry knows how important it is. Um, and we also have to balance helping clients that do have a lot of resource that, you know, maybe can can do the work themselves because they are potential donors that have resource to help in the future. And while we want to stay in those neighborhoods that, that are underserved and have the higher population of cats, you have to, uh, you have to acknowledge that uh, you have people that want to help and you don't want to lose that support, even the, the the physical support of doing the work themselves before people get frustrated. And I think that's where we're starting to see an increase in our cases and uh, the temperature of clients when they contact us. Um, it's very challenging emotionally to keep. We have 787 cases on our wait list. And right now with our current resources, that will take us over 24 months if we never got another request. And that's financial, people, resources, everything, spay-neuter resource. And the reality is that that's where the, the critical point of being strategic and focused on not putting out fires or helping people just because they scream the loudest, which I want to. I mean, we all want to so badly. It, it becomes necessary to even double down to be more strategic and make sure you're making an impact. So with all those folks on your wait list, are there resources that you give them that they might be able to help themselves with the hope that once you get to their turn, they may have already resolved the issue? So we help people with cats that are friendly, that they can get into a clinic themselves with possible potential uh, alternate clinics. We um, try to divert people uh, that have indoor cats that are not fixed. Uh, to our partners actively um, and provide resource for that. So yes, we do um, have responses to tell them where to go and to follow us on Facebook and things of that nature um, to to try to take care of that. And we do find it when we get to a person uh, that they go, oh, I got it into a clinic. And we're like, yes, <laughs> one more off the list. Exactly. That, that's a big check, a big check for sure. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, 
Dawn, if folks are interested in finding out more about Indie Neighborhood Cats, how would they do that? So the best way is to follow us on Facebook uh, because we're very active uh, on Facebook and sharing information, which is just Indie Neighborhood Cats, or I'm sorry, Facebook.com, Indie Neighborhood Cats. Our website is simply IndieNeighborhoodCats.org. Excellent. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think I'd just like to say we know how we we know the challenges that people have, uh, whether you're a small TNR organization, you're just a person that's interested in helping the cats in your neighborhood, or you're a larger organization um, closer to the size that we had to become. I would have liked to have had 10 more years to build up to where we're at today. But just staying strong and realizing just because we may have numbers that are higher than another organization. So we fixed 2,300 cats, they fixed 230. In that community that they're in, that is just as impactful. And the only reason we have the higher numbers is for a bigger area. And to just stay strong, talk to each other, find each other to support one another, because we are really, at the end of the day, all team cats. Excellent. All team cat. Love it. Love it. Dawn, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. And you are the boss of Mass Trapping. Well, well, thank you. (laughs) That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think. And a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.